Welcome to the BNP Realm Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Brian, and as always, thanks for joining me. Today's episode of the BNP Realm is protesting the bullshit of Russiagate. Yes, I just couldn't resist returning to that favorite word of mine, bullshit. Because in a lifetime of watching nonsense that masquerades as news, well, Nothing is even near the top of the pile of the bullshit brigade as Russiagate. Now, there are three clips to today's episode. Before I give details about them, a few points to set up the podcast. First, the Russiagate story, like most stories about American politics during the Trump presidency, has been muddled from the get-go because it is caught up in the ridiculous hyper-partisanship of the media landscape. The problem, folks is that people think there are only two sides, and in the Trump era, that means pro-Trump and anti-Trump, the so-called hashtag resistance. Well, if you look at American opinion polls, you'll see that in reality, more people identify as independents, 38%, than as Democrats, 31%, or Republicans, 26%, according to a 2019 poll by the Pew Research Institute. Now, There are some details in those polls that show only 7 of those 38% show no lean toward either party, but the point is that opinions are complicated, and the ever-increasing and always stupefyingly simplistic two-sides-either-or nature of our cultural discourse, which is promoted by the media to get people to fight with each other instead of to fight for each other, well, it's fucking dumb, and we need to stop falling into its trap. The second point is that I never once got caught up in the weeds of Russiagate or the impeachment trial. But that does not mean I didn't follow either. No, what I did was I followed journalists who I've long trusted over the years, or journalists who, in recent years, have shown me they are worthy of my trust. First and foremost on this list is Matt Taibbi, who I've been an avid reader of and listener to for over a decade. That's why the main clip today is me reading his recent article on the topic of Russiagate. Now, another journalist, one who is newer to me than Taibbi, but I believe is equally credible, is Aaron Mate, and he's been focusing very closely on Russiagate. So, it made me very happy when I saw on my podcast feed over the weekend that Mate was going to be on Taibbi's podcast, along with co-host Katie Halper, to talk about Russiagate. Thus, I've taken two shorter clips from their discussion and added my own comments at the end. The first is a bit of going into some of those weeds, but it made me laugh, and I'm using it to illustrate the absolute farce of this story. In this case, we are talking troll farms, masturbation, and Jesus. Yes, that is a teaser if ever there was one. After that, you get me reading the Taibi article, which I admit asks a bit of your concentration to listen to, but unlike a lot of the media outlets, I know you, my listeners, are very intelligent. I believe in you. So, bear with the first half of the article, as the second half is where he really drops the hammer of the gods. Sorry, Led Zeppelin reference there. And then we go back to the Useful Idiots podcast to listen to Mate, Taibi, and Halper talk about the very real and dangerous foreign policy consequences of this fake news Russiagate story. What am I talking about? Quite simply, Trump has been more hawkish on Russia than previous presidents, and yet, 
Because the fake news media has put so much effort into hyping up and believing their own BS regarding Trump's so-called collusion with Russia, they can't tell us about the very real possibility that macho men Trump and Putin could lead our two nuclear powers into a standoff. I then talk a little bit about my particular focus regarding all of this, which is the lack of integrity in the media and how I believe the profit motive is behind a lot of it. And then last, as always, two more chapters of The Teacher and the Tree Man. Today, we are on chapters 9 and 10 of book 4, which means after this, we've only got 10 chapters to go. Wow! Okay, that's the show today. Enjoy, everyone. Look, then you have to remember that the other component of this thing was this troll farm, which is just oh, comical. Yeah. You know, that we were told that this social media operation pitted Americans against each other, sowed chaos, you know. Because uh, otherwise we'd be able to get along. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Uh, racism. No, exactly. Like, it, it helped, it helped uh, stoke racial tensions. According to Hillary Clinton, uh, the social media ads helped convince blacks not to vote in Michigan. I'm quoting that. Uh, those aren't my words. She actually yeah. said that. And then you look at these at these ads, and it's juvenile clickbait from a Russian troll farm. Most of it has nothing to do with the election. Most of it came after the election. So it's curious that ads that mostly right. air after the election somehow influence the election. And they're all, you know, it's like dumb memes like, you know, Jesus, a Jesus masturbation yeah. outline. Yeah. You know, there's there's a there's one that says like it's there's a cartoon of Jesus consoling a young a dejected young man and he says if you're having problems with masturbation reach out to jesus and we'll beat it together yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we're, we're supposed and to it, yeah it says struggling and, and with addiction to masturbation reach out to me and we will beat it together you can't hold hands with god when you are masturbating use our hotline <laughs> if you need help well we can indict the russians for their uh you know um male-centric masturbation ads i, I guess yeah. but, right uh but right. you know um but yeah, so let's indict them for that. But can we indict them for the sweeping and sophisticated propaganda operation that literally every single news outlet told us like was influential and, and reached hundreds of millions of people on and on? It's, it's such garbage. And it's such garbage that Mueller uh, first had to drop his suggestion. He never outright said it. These, like, the Mueller people were so slick. They were so disingenuous in their language. So they suggested that this troll farm was part of this Russian government operation. But the Russian troll farm challenged Mueller's indictments in court. And basically Mueller had to admit that actually they have no evidence at all tying this troll farm to the Russian government beyond the nickname of the owner, this guy Prigozhin. He's known as Putin's chef. That's the only evidence they have of any remote tie between uh, the Kremlin and this troll farm. So the idea of this being part of a government operation was – destroyed there. And by the way, if the Kremlin was responsible for it, they should be embarrassed because it was so juvenile, as the Jesus ad right. embodies. But this was the topic of serious discussion. You know, the reason I saw that Jesus ad, it was included inside a Senate commission study by this mm -hmm. firm New Knowledge. It has the imprint of the Senate Intelligence Committee. And it includes that Jesus ad under a section of how the Kremlin exploited American vulnerability in a bid to recruit people. <laughs> So that ad was an example of that. It's like it's this level of idiocy, but everybody took it seriously, and it got so ridiculous that Mueller ultimately dropped the case, or Mueller, the Mueller team members who are still at the DOJ, ultimately just recently dropped the case. And they claimed amazingly that if they were to continue the case, that the discovery process would jeopardize American national security. Well, they, they, in that case, they wouldn't even let the the client 
see all the discovery, right? They, they, they requested a special process whereby only the, the, the lawyers would, would get to see the actual yeah. evidence. Yeah, right? but, but even that request was, according to these prosecutors, a threat to national security. That somehow fighting this troll farm case, well, it's, it's laughable. So, it is laughable, and that is why people that get really upset with me for not following this closely. I mean, it's like getting mad at someone for not being a fan of the TV show Friends in the 90s, which I was not. But I don't remember anybody getting mad at me about it. People would ask me, oh, you should watch it. It's great. But nobody got mad at me about it. But to me, it's farce. This is all farce. And yet it's being used. It's being weaponized to divide people. And the worst thing about it to me is like I'm already divided in the sense from you know, the, 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 what you think of as the traditional conservative and whatever, like they're already going to be divided against me in terms of my politics. But what really maddens me right now is that I have close friends who we share a lot of politics. We share life stories and histories together. And some of them get mad at me over Russiagate because I'm, because I'm just doing what Matt Taibbi and Aaron Mate and people like them are doing, which is looking at it and, questioning it and like you should as any normal citizen reading the news and as any journalist would do you question things and when you look into it it's it's a joke and but by doing that all of a sudden because people make this mistake of thinking there's trump side and then there's not trump side there's for trump and there's against trump and they forget there's actually a third side which is independent and independent thinker and is independent i'm not for trump I'm not against Trump. I am an independent thinker, and I look at each story, and I judge it by the merits, and I go from there. And the, I'm really, I'm completely feel that Trump is terrible. The Republican Party is terrible. I felt that since about 1984, and the Democratic Party is also terrible, and I felt that since about 1994. And that hasn't changed. I really haven't changed in these years. And I believe one of the things that's happened with me is because. A, I'm an independent thinker, but B, because I've not been living in America where this stuff has been so weaponized against you all that I really haven't changed. It's the it's the people, well, it's all of you living in America that get so easily caught up in this and easily like, well, you're wrong, you're wrong, and, you know, like you've been you've you've basically been propagandized and weaponized by the partisan media. And so I'm going to be doing in my upcoming podcasts, not probably not the BNP realm, but um, I'm going to be doing some talking about Matt Taibbi's Hate Inc. Because it's a very important book. It's all about this weaponization of the media. Anyway, I've got to go. It's a little windy out here, and I'm taking my dog for a walk. She just had her shot. I don't know what for, but she got a vaccine, everybody. <laughs> um, I don't know what it was for, but she was a good doggy. She didn't even she flinched a little bit, but didn't even whimper or nothing. So I took her to the park here, and she's doing what she does, peeing and eating grass like a normal person would do when they go to the park, pee in the grass and eat the grass. Okay, and that's that clip. And uh, next up, you are going to hear me read Matt Taibbi's article. And like I said, it's more dry than this, but I think it's important to kind of hear how he spells out the case. And I would say the first half of it, I, I just don't really understand a lot of the, you know, the details to me aren't really that important. Uh, the latter half of the article is where it gets really good, so bear with it. Um, I tried to read it in a good way. Uh, I apologize for the quote, in quote. I don't know how else to do that, but if something's in quotes on the page, I think you have to say that. So um, anyway, uh, enjoy.
following was written by Matt Taibbi. The headline is, Democrats have abandoned civil liberties. The subhead is, The Blue Party's Trump-era embrace of authoritarianism isn't just wrong, it's a fatal political mistake. Emma G. Sullivan, the judge in the case of former Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, is refusing to let William Barr's Justice Department drop the charge. He's even thinking of adding more, appointing a retired judge to ask, quote, whether the court should issue an order to show cause why Mr. Flynn should not be held in criminal contempt for perjury. Pundits are cheering. A trio of former law enforcement and judicial officials saluted Sullivan in the Washington Post, chirping, quote, The Flynn case isn't over until a judge says it's over. End quote. Yuppie icon Jeffrey Tobin of CNN and The New Yorker, one of the hashtag resistance crowd's favorite legal authorities, described Sullivan's appointment of Judge John Gleason as, quote, brilliant, end quote. MSNBC legal analyst Glenn Kirshner said Americans owe Sullivan a, quote, debt of gratitude, end quote. One had to search far and wide to find a non-conservative legal analyst willing to say the obvious, i.e., that Sullivan's decision was the kind of thing one would expect from a judge in Belarus. George Washington University professor Jonathan Turley was one of the few willing to say Sullivan's move could, quote, create a threat of a judicial charge even when prosecutors agree with defendants, end quote. Sullivan's reaction was amplified by a group letter calling for Barr's resignation, signed by 2,000 former Justice Department officials. The melodramatic group email somberly reported as momentous news is one of many tired media tropes in the Trump era, and the preposterous, quote, leak of news that the dropped case made Barack Obama sad. The former president, quote, privately, end quote, told, quote, members of his administration, end quote, who instantly told Yahoo News that there was no precedent for the dropping of perjury charges and that the, quote, rule of law, end quote, itself was at stake. Whatever one's opinion of Flynn, his relations with Turkey, his, quote, lock her up chance, his haircut, or anything, this case was never about much. There is no longer pretense that prosecution would lead to the unspooling of a massive Trump-Russia conspiracy as pundits once breathlessly expected. In fact, news that Flynn was cooperating with special counsel Robert Mueller inspired many of the, quote, is this the beginning of the end for Trump, end quote, stories that will someday fill whole chapters of Journalism Fucks Up 101 textbooks. The acts at issue are calls Flynn made to Russian ambassador Sergei Kislyak on December 29, 2016, in which he told the Russians not to overreact to sanctions. That's it. The investigation was about to be dropped, but someone got the idea of using electronic surveillance of the calls to leverage a case into existence. In a secrets laundering maneuver straight out of the Dick Cheney playbook, some bright person first illegally leaked classified details to David Ignatius at the Washington Post, then agents rushed to interview Flynn about the, quote, news, end quote. Quote, 
the record of his conversation with Ambassador Kisiok had become widely known in the press, end quote, is how Deputy FBI Chief Andrew McCabe put it euphemistically, quote, We wanted to sit down with General Flynn and understand, kind of, what his thoughts on that conversation were, end quote. A Laurel and Hardy team of agents conducted the interview, then took three weeks to write and rewrite multiple versions of the interview notes used as evidence. Because why record it? They were supervised by a counterintelligence chief who then memorialized on paper his uncertainty over whether the FBI was trying to, quote, get him to lie or, quote, get him fired. Worrying that the White House was, quote, playing games, end quote. After another leak to the Washington Post in early February 2019, Flynn actually was fired and later pleaded guilty to lying about sanctions in the Kislyak call, the transcript of which was, of course, never released to either the defense or the public. Warrantless surveillance, multiple illegal leaks of classified information, a false statement charge constructed on the razor's edge of Miranda, and the use of never-produced, secret counterintelligent evidence in a domestic criminal proceeding, this is the, quote, rule of law, end quote, we're being asked to cheer. Russiagate cases were often two-level offenses, factually bogus or exaggerated, but also indicative of authoritarian practices. Democrats and Democrat-friendly pundits in the last four years have been consistently unable to register objections on either front. Flynn's case fit the pattern. We were told his plea was just the, quote, tip of the iceberg that would, quote, take the trail of Russian collusion, quote, to the, quote, center of the plot, i.e. Trump. It turned out he had no deeper story to tell. In fact, None of the people prosecutors tossed in jail to get at the Russian plot, some little more than bystanders, had anything to share. Remember George Papadopoulos, whose alleged conversation about dirt on Hillary Clinton with an Australian diplomat created the pretext for the FBI's entire Trump-Russia investigation? We just found out, in newly released testimony by McCabe, that the FBI felt as early as the summer of 2016 that the evidence, quote, didn't particularly indicate, end quote, that Papadopoulos was, quote, interacting with the Russians, end quote. If you're in the media and keeping score, that's about six months before our industry lost its mind and scrambled to make Watergate comparisons over Jim Comey's March 2017, quote, bombshell. End quote, revelation of the existence of an FBI Trump-Russia investigation. Nobody bothered to wonder if they actually had any evidence. Similarly, Chelsea Manning insisted she'd already answered all pertinent questions about Julian Assange, but prosecutors didn't find that answer satisfactory, and threw her in jail for a year anyway, only releasing her when she tried to kill herself. She still owes $256,000 in fines, not that our many supporters from the Bush days seemed to care much. The Flynn case was built on surveillance gathered under the FISA Amendments Act of 2008, a program that seems to have been abused on a massive scale by both Democratic and Republican administrations. After Edward Snowden's 2013 revelations about mass data collection, 
a series of internal investigations began showing officials were breaking rules against spying on specific Americans via this NSA program. Searches were conducted too often and without proper justification, and the results were shared with too many people, including private contractors. By October 2016, the FISA court was declaring that systemic overuse of so-called, quote, 702, in quote, searches were a, quote, very serious Fourth Amendment issue. In later court documents, it came out that the FBI conducted 3.1 million such searches in 2017 alone. As the Brennan Center put it, quote, almost certainly, the total number of U.S. person queries run by the FBI each year is well into the millions. Anyone who bothers to look back will find hints at how this program might have been misused. In late 2015, Obama officials bragged to the Wall Street Journal they'd made use of FISA surveillance involving, quote, Jewish American groups, end quote, as well as, quote, U.S. lawmakers, end quote, in Congress, all because they wanted to more effectively, quote, counter, end quote, Israeli opposition to Obama's nuclear deal with Iran. This is a long way from using surveillance to defuse terror plots or break up human trafficking rings. I can understand not caring about the plight of Michael Flynn, but cases like this have turned erstwhile liberals, people who just a decade ago were marching in the streets over the civil liberties implications of Cheney's war on terror apparatus, into defenders of the spy state. Politicians and pundits across the last four years have rolled their eyes at attorney-client privilege, the presumption of innocence, the right to face one's accuser, the right to counsel, and a host of other issues, regularly denouncing civil rights worries as red herring excuses for Trumpism. Democrats clearly believe constituents will forgive them for abandoning constitutional principles so long as the targets of official inquiry are figures like Flynn or Paul Manafort or Trump himself. In the process, They've raised a generation of followers whose contempt for civil liberties is now genuine to permanent. Blue staters have gone from dismissing constitutional concerns as Trumpian ruse to sneering at them in the manner of French aristocrats as evidence of proletarian mental defect. Nowhere has this been more evident than in the response to the COVID-19 crisis, where the almost mandatory take of pundits is that any protest of lockdown measures its troglodyte death wish. The aftereffects of years of Russiagate slash Trump coverage are seen everywhere. Press outlets reflexively associate complaints of government overreach with Trump, treason, and racism, and conversely radiate a creepily gleeful tone when describing aggressive emergency measures and the problems some, quote, dumb End quote. Americans have had accepting them. On the campaign trail in 2016, I watched Democrats hand Trump the economic populism argument by dismissing all complaints about the failures of neoliberal economics. This mistake was later compounded by years of propaganda arguing that, quote, economic insecurity, quote, was just a Trojan horse term for racism. These takes, along with the absurd kneecapping of the Bernie Sanders movement, have allowed Trump 
to position himself as a working-class hero, the sole voice of a squeezed underclass. The same mistake is now being made with civil liberties. Millions have lost their jobs and businesses by government fiat. There's a clamor for censorship and contract tracing programs that could have serious long-term consequences. Yet voters only hear Trump making occasional remarks about freedom. Democrats treat it like it's a word that should be banned by Facebook. A recent Washington Post headline put the term in quotation marks as if one should be gloved to touch it. Has the Trump era really damaged our thinking to this degree? My family is in quarantine. I worry about a premature return to work. And sure, I laughed at that Shaun of the Dead photo of Ohio protesters protesting state lockdown laws. But I also recognize the crisis is also raising serious civil liberties issues, from prisoners trapped in deadly conditions to profound questions about speech and assembly, the limits to surveillance and snitching, etc. If this disease is going to be in our lives for the foreseeable future, that makes it more urgent that we talk about what these rules will be, not less. Yet the party I grew up supporting seems to have lost the ability to do so, and I don't understand why. Okay, that was Matt Tybee, like I said, and I'm 100% on board with every word in that article. Uh, he knows a lot more than I do about all those details about Russiagate, but that, folks, is not a pro-Trump writer. <laughs> that, folks, is a man who basically has contempt for both parties, as I do, and who sees them as completely lacking integrity, morality, and a sense of humor, for that matter. Although he kind of laughs about some of the stuff that, you know, he laughs about a lot of stuff. But, um, yeah, that's, that, I mean, I'm, I'm going to use this, and I'm glad I was able to read it for you. Uh, I will say in closing that technically I probably shouldn't share this because this is behind a paywall now, but uh, I think it's important, and hell, my podcast is only listened to about 10 people right now so there you go that's matt tybee and um those of you who do uh discuss politics with me and who get into this partisan nonsense of oh you're doing trump talking points and all this stuff please understand i do not do not find trump any way any way a decent moral intelligent human being i think his policies are for the most part reprehensible i think many of his followers are deluded by him they're looking for a strong man as many people do when they when the times are in crisis that said i expect much more from the democrats not just the Democrats. I expect more from people who support the Democrats. The Democrats have never listened to me, and they probably never will. I've given up hope on them. Bernie Sanders was an outsider. I never thought in my heart of hearts that he would probably become president, but I hoped. However, many people who I know, who I respect, who I love, have in recent years, especially these past two years, to me, gone down the crazy train a little bit with their belief that the Democratic Party is somehow on our side. They're not, just like the Republicans aren't. 
And this is why I will close this little comment today by saying, right now, as of this sitting, Sunday evening, May 17th, 2020, and this might change, but right now, as of this sitting, I am hoping for a breakup of the American political system. I know there can be many consequences to that, but the way I see it, this federal government is irredeemable at this point. Now, maybe something will happen that will change that, but that's where I'm sitting right now. So, please understand, I'm coming at this from the perspective of a lifelong independent. I have never once declared for either party. The only time I have is when I fill in my primary ballot in Washington State. You have to check out Democrat or Republican, and then you can choose to vote for that person. I've been checking off Democrat, but I'm an independent. I don't identify with either party, and my anger, my rage, is more toward the Democrats because I have grown up knowing and expecting that the Republicans support rich people and people who are diametrically opposed to what I think is the proper path forward. Okay, The people, the working people, they're elitists. They're the party of the elitists. Unfortunately, the Democrats in my lifetime have joined up with them. And so now we've got two elitist parties, and yet people out there on both sides, on the Trump people, the Trump supporters, and then the Democrat people act like they're supporting their interests. They're not. Okay? They're not. As George Carlin once famously said, the reason they call it the American dream is you got to be asleep to believe it. All right. Now, I want to say one more thing. I believe in the American people, I believe in the American land, and I think if we can just stop fighting with each other and say this government, we need to we need a revolution, we need to overthrow the federal government and work together to create the next system, then it's okay. What I worry the most about is that Americans will go into some civil war or will blame everything on China and start a world war or something like that where the people will suffer again because of the failures of our leadership. And so I want people to recognize that what's happened has been a system that has gotten beyond corrupt, doesn't care about us anymore. So let's get rid of the system. But let's look at that Trump supporter and go, you know what, brother? You got screwed. I got screwed. We got screwed during all this. Let's work together to make something new. That's how I'll end. Because I don't want to end with the negative of the American dream, you know. Um, I don't want to end that way. So let's work together with our fellow Americans. Okay? All right. Thanks for listening. This is Hunter Biden here. I'm telling you, you got to buy Brian's book, The Teacher and the Tree Man. And you've only got about, well, about a month to do it. Until his mama's birthday. When was that again, Brian? Uh, June 10th. June 10th. What year? 2020. 2020. I don't know what day it is when you're listening to this, but if it's after that, you're shit out of luck. But if it's before that, go buy Brian's book. You're going to get it right now for only $5. Go to Amazon. Your link is here in the show notes. Isn't that right, Brian? Of course. Okay. Just making sure I'm covering this right. I'm only five chapters in, and this book's fucking amazing. Oh, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Of course. Good. I like fucking swearing. I'm from Texas, after all. <laughs> you know, Texans, we like swearing. God damn it, okay. Get to the point, Hunter. We got to hurry it up. Okay, yeah, so the book's real good. I'm five chapters in, and I already realized what a moron I've been all my life. 
If I'd only had this book, well, quite a while ago, but maybe if I'd had it a couple years ago, I would have told my pa not to run and let Bernie Sanders win. But bygones be bygones, as they say down south. So order the book. You got fucking, what, how many days, Brian? I don't know the exact days. Just till my mom's birthday, June 10th. Okay, June 10th. Order the book, because after that, what's the price going to be, Brian? I'm not sure yet, but at least $5 more, so double the price. Might be $10 more, I don't know, but double the price. Double the price, everybody. It's worth it. $5 for a book that's the length of three books, and it's got the wisdom of the ages. It's got it all. I'm telling you that right now from the bottom of my Texan soul. Buy the book. Teach him the tree, man. Thanks. Thanks, Hunter. You're welcome, Brian. Have a good one. things should be being walked back at this point and aren't you know you know i think the problem is it's like it's sensory overload i mean there have been so many bombshells that then get retracted and so many embarrassing disclosures and i think there's a fatigue now there's only so much people can i mean people are just tired of the story because it's well, of course it was yeah. it's so dumb and it dominated everything for over three years so people understandably want to move on and of course you know this is a dynamic you've written about extensively matt the the, the people who commit the mistakes are the last people to hold themselves accountable in media. You know, there's just this culture of complete impunity. There's, you know, um, there's, you know, I just saw like the Atlantic just published this huge piece Foyer. by Franklin Foyer <laughs> about how Putin is going to sabotage the 2020 election. And last time I saw Foyer, he was pushing this story that Trump and Russia communicated via the, the via the servers of this bank, Alpha Bank, which is it's just so moronic on its face. And of course, is one of many things that have been debunked. But Foyer can go ahead and do it. And you know, like. He can say things like he has a line in his piece that where he says that, you know, Putin has gotten everything he wanted out of Trump as Trump continues to do things on Putin's wish list. When the reality is that actually in Trump, we've gotten one of the most hawkish presidents on Russia in decades. I mean, what Trump is doing with Russia is literally threatening global extinction, uh, pulling out of the INF Treaty. And then now threatening to kill the last remaining treaty, uh, limiting our nuclear stockpiles, the New START Treaty. And, you know, uh, launching a coup in Venezuela against uh, Russia's ally there, uh, trying to block a construction of a Russia-German gas pipeline, which is a really important project. Well, to, to, Russia. to Russia, that's a, that's a hugely important issue. The, pipe, the pipeline thing is, you know, th that, that would be their number one issue, I would think. How would policy. you know, Matt? I mean, um, <laughs> right, right, yeah. And, and Trump Who have is you been to, talking to? And Trump is trying to stop it. He's even, you know, uh, threatening sanctions over it. But all that just gets ignored because it doesn't jibe with the narrative that liberals like Franklin Foyer and The Atlantic have been pushing. And it's like people would rather live in a fantasy world, in this comforting fantasy world, a privileged protection, uh, pr protecting fantasy world, than acknowledge policies that are literally threatening global extinction. It's like, and challenge them. It's crazy. What's scary to me is that there are people who are civilians who I respect. They're smart. They're progressive. They like Sanders. Uh, and they, someone I was talking to yesterday was really upset. I was actually uh, telling them about your clip, Matt, on Rising, where you're talking about the Flynn story and how he was set up. And this person was really upset, and he was like, oh, great, Trump is just going to use this. He's going to win again. He's going to use this. And I was like— It's not my fault. It's not—I mean, <laughs> he wasn't upset at you, per se. He was just upset right. about this being revealed. And I was like, 
you this is why you can't build things on lies. It's just not going to work. And that's what I find so frustrating is that even if you are politically motivated and your goal is to defeat Trump, it's not going to work. No, it isn't. And this is why, for me, the lack of integrity in the media is my biggest issue when it comes to all of this. I expect politicians to lie and to promote narratives. That is political science 101. Politicians lie and they feed us bullshit. The job of the media is to find out what is the truth amidst all the lies. And it's challenging. But the problem is when the media becomes partisan, one side or the other, the next thing you know it, you've just got propaganda and nobody knows what's really going on. It's all muddled together. And as someone who studied political science and print journalism at a top university in those fields and graduated with honors, it disheartens me to no end to see what's happened to the American media in my lifetime. Because I can tell you this, when I graduated from college in 1995, I saw the signs of this coming. I was worried about it. It was connected in my opinion, and I think this is a hun I think this is a big part of the reason, but I'll like I said, I will have some clips from my future podcast from Hate Inc., Matt Taibbi's book, to go into more detail about this. But it's connected to the profit motive, and the media has been dumped taken over by the profit motive. If you go back to twentieth century media, news organizations would be part of corporate wings that would actually allow their news organizations to lose money because to them it was a public service they were doing. And so they had things like investigative journalists and they weren't trying to promote stories that got people to, well, back to the meaning of clickbait, but to the got people to watch. They weren't trying to be disingenuous just to get ratings up and to get advertising. There was That motivation was very much not a big part of the picture. But in the late 80s, there was a deregulation by the Reagan administration, the Telecommunications Act. That led to the rise of the right-wing talk radio, the Rush Limbaugh's of the world. And so by the time I got into journalism school, there was talk about all this, like, oh, the media is becoming less reliable, less subjective. And, well, when I got, I'll finish it a little anecdote, when I got out of college and I was a sports writer, our newspaper, the Los Angeles Daily News, was bought out by the man who owned the Washington Redskins, Jack Kent Cook, I believe his name was, and he was known even as an NFL owner as being a real cheapskate. And guess what? I made $9 an hour. I made $9 an hour living in the big city of Los Angeles, $9 an hour in the mid-90s for a college a job that required a college degree, for the most part. There were a few people that didn't have a college degree, but... They were older. Anyway, a very low wage, like barely above minimum wage. And guess what my Christmas bonus was one year? All of us, we were so happy. We got free sodas from the drinking fountain, from the soda machines for a weekend. So those of us on the sports desk, well, we were a little bit rambunctious and we would talk out loud about how cheap the place was. So I remember we all got the sodas and like we would go and just, we have, I had like seven, I made a like a fence of sodas on my desk to kind of be like, all right, I get this for free. And then we all got jacked up on Mountain Dew and soft drinks. And we all had a good time. We had a soda party because that was what a hell of a bonus. But that was all part of the media being bought out by people who were looking to make money off of it. And that has only intensified. 
And so a lot of what's going on here has to do with when people talk about getting money out of politics, we got to get money out of media too. Not 100%, but we've got to really think about how money can, when it becomes obsessive about this enterprise is to make money, you are going to lose a lot of things. And when it comes to journalism, we've lost a lot. So that is my take on Russiagate. Up next, you're going to hear two chapters from The Teacher and the Tree Man, where our tree man protagonist is continuing his bid to become president of the United States. And he's going to talk more about foreign policy and how he would do things if he was president. And I think it's an interesting take. And then you're going to get some other stuff from the book. So enjoy that. And uh, thanks again for tuning in. And I'll catch you in a few days for episode 36. Enjoy. Chapter 9. More Banter with Barry. This time, Sylvanus wasn't sweating like the first appearance on Wind's show, so the makeup didn't bother him. Not that he wasn't nervous. No, any time a person goes on national TV under those circumstances, they'd have to be a fool, or a robot, to be free of nerves. But for some reason, he'd started to accept that all of this had been meant to be, that ever since Lucas had discovered him, his path to this day had been cleared. And this thought gave him a certain relaxed confidence, a feeling that he'd made the right choice. You ready, Mr. Douglas? One of Wynne's staff asked. As I'm ever going to be, Sylvanus said and smiled. Lucas wasn't there, and though Sylvanus was confident, he missed Lucas's encouraging words as he headed for the studio stage. Wynne smiled as he stood up from his desk and shook Sylvanus's hand. Good to see you again, Mr. Douglas. Please, Sylvanus said. Call me Sylvanus. Considering the circumstances, isn't that a bit informal? A uh, good point, Sylvanus said, but I still prefer Sylvanus. Fair enough, Wynne said. You're on in ten, Barry, came a voice from a PA. Here we go, Wynne said. Three, two, one. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, Wynne said. Once again, I am pleased to welcome Mr. Sylvanus Douglas to the program. His last visit to our show sparked some very interesting discussions about our country and its place in our world, so we simply had to get him back on. Sylvanus, it's good to see you again. The feeling is mutual, Barry, Sylvanus said. Before we get going, I wonder if you'll humor me for a moment, as there is something I'd like to announce. Sure, Wynne said. The floor is yours. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I recognize this might be an odd way to do this, but since Barry was the first national TV program host to interview me, I wanted to thank him, Sylvanus said. He paused. Once he said it, there was no turning back. A small part of him screamed for him to reconsider, but he paid it little attention. He ventured forward. Tonight, I'm announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. I will be running as an independent because I want to reach out to everyone and I don't want our efforts to get bogged down in party politics or an attempt to start a new party. So folks, if you are interested, you can contact us either through my current www.sylvanusdouglas.com site or a new one we have just created, www.sylvanus4prez.com. Wow, Barry said. You certainly know how to kickstart an interview, but where to begin? Wherever you want, Sylvanus said. What compels you to make a run for president? Wayne asked. Quite simply, Barry, Sylvanus said. The people do. The people? 
Yes, Sylvanus said. It started with those overwhelming poll numbers on this station a few weeks ago, and continued when I gave my first public speech, and the crowd wouldn't let me leave without making it known loud and clear that they wanted to see me run. Even still, I continued to wrestle with the decision over the next few days, but the amount of encouraging feedback I received on my website, combined with my growing sense that if I didn't run, many of the issues I felt needed discussing in this presidential campaign would be totally ignored. It convinced me I had to give it a shot. Well, I've no doubt your candidacy will broaden the discussion, Wynne said. Now, I thought tonight might be a good opportunity for you to answer some of your critics. Sounds good, Sylvanus said. Okay, the first is coming from all wings of the media, not just the right wing, and that is, you don't have the experience necessary to be president, Wynne said. Even you seem to admit this on a blog entry when you wrote, I just have so many questions about how things work in this world. How do you answer this? It's a valid critique, Sylvanus admitted. But maybe this is a positive. People are tired of Washington insiders, career politicians, and politicians from lifelong political families. I am, too. They run the country as though they have an inherent right to control our lives, with very little attention paid to our input or concerns. There is nothing new in any of that. Most people recognize we need radical changes, not cosmetic ones. My vision and candidacy provides that. Okay, Wynne said. A related critique is that you are not broadly focused enough to be president, that all you care about are environmental issues. A couple of things there, Sylvanus said. First, it's not true. I tried to address some of that in my recent blog entries by mentioning other issues, national security, the war on drugs, the economy. I also said that my candidacy would be an evolving one that will be greatly aided by tapping into the knowledge of millions of Americans who want to help create a better world and future. Second, sometimes I think we make a big mistake by putting these things into categories, as though there is no overlap. So, when we look at so-called environmental issues, we need to realize that they are also economic issues, health issues, recreational issues, spiritual issues, and so on. So, yes, my philosophy is based on a deep reverence and respect for nature, and my presidency would reflect that. But that doesn't mean I would ignore other issues that are important to people's lives. But some people say you don't recognize how dangerous this world is, Wynne said. I recognize that there are dangers, but I question how our current administration chooses to hype them up, Sylvanus said. For one, dividing the world into good guys and bad guys is simplistic and incorrect. Second, I am disgusted by the response to 9-11. It seemed like a year-long campaign of scaring the American people to convince them that the next boogeyman was in Iraq, and at any moment he was going to attack an American city with weapons that looked more and more like they didn't exist. And then, after whipping the American people into this frenzy of war, you get the president pulling stunts like he did yesterday, landing like a cowboy on an aircraft carrier, and then announcing, mission accomplished. Look, I don't want to take anything away from the troops who are doing their job, but to celebrate any act of war, especially one that was completely unnecessary, is completely ignoring the tragedy of war. Then again, this president had Daddy pull some strings so he could dodge his service in Vietnam, so he has no idea what war is about. Sylvanus was getting upset, 
and he knew it. But whenever he thought of the way Bush acted on matters of war, it struck a very deep emotional chord in him, and his usually subdued personality was taken over. Those are pretty harsh words, Wynne said. Sorry, but I don't respect the guy, Sylvanus said. Not at all. And, unlike some politicians, I am not going to mince words. But I want to go back to the original question and broaden my focus. There is a mental exercise I like to do when I look at these big picture questions. It's simple, really. I ask myself, what do we teach our young children? With regard to solving conflicts, we teach them, first and foremost, that using violence is wrong, period. Yet we rationalize it as adults. We also teach that it's rather impractical. In the short run, it may seem to help, but in the long run, it doesn't. So what do we tell them they should do? We tell them the best defense is to not create enemies in the first place. How? By being good to people. But what of someone who doesn't deserve it? Wayne asked. Who are we to decide that? Sylvanus asked. Well, if someone treats you poorly from the get-go, with no prompting from you, no fault of your own, what do we do? A great question, Barry, Sylvanus said. There are no easy answers, and I am sorry if I am making it sound like there are. Christ would say we need to turn the other cheek. Yet, at the same time, he was the same man that expressed righteous anger at the moneylenders in the temple. So there can, on occasion, be a time for putting up defenses, or even being aggressive. Still, I think if we more often responded to our aggressors with some measure of kindness and compassion, while also being clear and firm that we won't be a punching bag, we'd reduce a lot of unnecessary conflict in the world. But you're saying this works on the collective level as well? On the international stage? Uh, for the most part, yes, Sylvanus said. These are core principles, Barry, and core principles should not be discarded just because we think it might be convenient to do so. I think that's a good point, Wynne said. Oh, good, Sylvanus said. Now, if we move the discussion one step up from the individual to one's local community, we can ask, are you more likely to have true security if you are liked and respected by your community and have very limited defenses surrounding your house? Or if you are feared and disrespectful and you rely on an arsenal of weapons and security systems to scare people away from attacking you? If we chose the latter path, when we go to sleep at night and are most vulnerable, how secure will we really feel? We will feel alone. And even with the weapons and security system, in the back of our mind, we will worry that it's not enough, that there is a weakness in our defenses. On the other hand, if people like and respect us, we will go to sleep at night feeling peace. No need to worry that some neighbor will attack us. Why would they? Okay, Wynne said, but to take it back to the international level, what about some malicious belligerent leader like Hitler? Of course, the Hitler argument, Sylvanus exclaimed. People often use this argument as though just because we have a bad apple, we should then treat everyone as though they are bad apples. Again, this is not an easy question. Before I delve into the general objection, let me say that from my reading of history, there were many steps along the way to Hitler's rise to power, where he could have been stopped had people been more clear in their thinking and courageous in their actions. And maybe, more importantly, more forgiving and less vengeful, because the world's penalties against Germany for World War I helped create the dire economic conditions 
that were ripe for Hitler to exploit and come to power. But let's not get too far off track. He continued, Here is my proposal that, as president, I'd push for. I'd push for an international law outlawing any form of political violence, which means all forms of war and terrorism. No more of these rationalizations. They attacked us first. You don't attack, ever. So, any country that broke a law of non-aggression would be committing suicide because it's my idea that such a country could be immediately ostracized through things like an immediate cessation of all foreign trade. For really, no country in this interdependent world can truly survive on its own. What about North Korea? Are they really on their own? Seems like China, among others, is helping them, Sylvanus said. And how well are they really surviving? I don't honestly know the answer to that question. We have little information about what life is like in that country, don't we? North Korea is one of the so-called axis of evil countries, so why are we not hearing calls to liberate them? Perhaps because they are not sitting on a giant pool of oil, like Iraq is. Okay, fair enough, but do you really think countries would agree to this? Well, it wouldn't be easy, but I take some hope from our experiment here in America, Sylvanus said. We've got 50 states, and they don't always see eye to eye on things. Being from the West Coast, I can tell you that there are plenty of people in Washington who really don't like Californians and resent them for a lot of things. And Californians are sometimes jealous of our water supply. That said, is there even a slight possibility that California would attack Washington for access to its resources? Not very likely. Why? Because we've agreed on a framework that rules out such an action. Again, I'm not saying it would be easy to get to this point on the international level, nor would I expect to achieve it in the time I might be president. But really, America is in the unique position of being able to start the world down the path toward achieving this vision, Sylvanus said. By doing so, I think all of a sudden we'd see a lifting of our collective spirits. Because now, we are being told that this so-called war on terror may last for decades. What a bummer! So much for mission accomplished. What if we downplayed our emphasis on that? turned down the fear-mongering, and instead said we were creating an action for peace. Something catchier, perhaps, but something that doesn't refer to our collective challenges as yet another war on something. Uh, you can stop me any time, Barry. Wynne laughed and said, Well, I don't have a great desire to do so, but it is time for a commercial break. So why don't we all catch our breath, reflect on what we've heard so far, and then come back with more from the presidential hopeful. Sylvanus Douglas. They went to a break, and Sylvanus said, Sorry, Barry. Sorry? For what? Uh, getting on my soapbox and carrying on like that without giving you a chance to respond, Sylvanus said. Don't you worry about that, Lynn said. I've plenty of experience in interrupting guests who are rambling nowhere. Sylvanus laughed and said, So, I'm rambling? Somewhere? Yeah, Lynn said. It's a lot to consider, but definitely worth considering. When they came back from the break, Wynne asked Sylvanus what he thought about how the two political parties used the government. Another great question, Barry, Sylvanus said. The short answer is they use it poorly. They abuse their power and ignore the government's function as a safeguard for the people. Right now, the size of the federal government is way too big. I'd like to reduce it a lot. No matter which party is in power, the government always gets bigger. 
The Republicans are big hypocrites about this because they always say they favor small government. Yet, under Bush, not only has he created this whole new Department of Homeland Security, he's pushed through laws vastly expanding the power of the executive, not to mention laws that threaten our daily civil liberties. And, in general, the Republicans always talk about keeping governments out of our lives, yet they talk about wanting to make abortion illegal. They want to police how people behave in their bedrooms and tell people what they can put into their body and what they can't, and on and on. The Democrats, Sylvanus continued, aren't much better, however. They don't pay as much lip service to the idea of making the government small, but in areas we'd expect to see them make some reductions, such as in the size of the military and in the overreach of the legal system with regard to civil liberties, they just keep increasing those things. And it's all based on their fear that if they don't do those things, the Republicans are going to accuse them of being soft. Let them accuse it, and then stand up strong for your positions and policies. I think much of the reason the Democratic Party has been so weakened in the past 30 years or so is because it so rarely stands strong for anything. It's a party that merely puts its finger up to the political wind and determines its policies based on which way it's blowing. The party lacks real conviction and substance. I don't think a person can truly say that about the Republicans. Yes, that does seem to be a common critique among the progressives I've had on this program, Wynne said. And yet, the Democratic leadership doesn't listen, Sylvanus said. It makes me sick. I think it just shows how similar the two parties are at their core, and how much the big-moneyed interests have corrupted our politics. And, speaking of big money, there is one area where both parties have been greatly reducing the role of the government, policing our financial institutions. The Clinton administration, along with the support of the Republicans in Congress, gutted the Glass-Steagall Act in 1999, an act that was created during the Depression to stop a future depression from occurring. So no, I am not saying we reduce all aspects of the government. I just want to reduce those things which are intruding on the lives of everyday people, while continuing to encourage the government's role as regulator against other large institutions that don't always have our best interests at heart. You sound like a classic populist. Are you inspired by them? Wynne said. Well, last year when I first got out of the tree, my friend Paul Lucas gave me Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, and I was greatly moved by it, Sylvanus said. People like Eugene Debs are an inspiration. Debs was imprisoned for having the courage to speak out against what he called an unjust war during World War I, saying that the war was created to benefit capitalists, which of course harmed the masses. But wasn't he a socialist? Wynne asked. Well, that was the label under which he ran, Sylvanus said. But I am wary of such labels. That's why I am not creating a label for my candidacy to run under. Debs was, above all else, an extremely moral, courageous human being who believed in humanity. That should be an inspiration to anybody, no matter their politics. Well, it's certainly been an inspiration talking with you this evening, Sylvanus, Wynne said. But I'm afraid that's going to have to be the end of this round, though I've got a feeling there will be future discussions. I look forward to them, Barry, Sylvanus said. As do I, Wynne said. Next, I am going to speak with progressive journalist Norman Solomon, and I am sure he will be eager to talk about Mr. Douglas's candidacy, as well as other topics. We'll be right back. Chapter 10. Political Realities So, Terry said, turning to her husband sitting on the couch next to her, 
What did you think? Pretty good, Lucas said, though I wonder how much his long statements will be reduced into incomplete sound bites again. Yeah, he may need to shorten his answers to coincide with our attention spans, Terry said. How about you? Lucas asked. What did you think? Well, Terry said, first, it was no less weird than the first time I saw our Sylvanus being interviewed on national TV. But, beyond my emotional reaction, I agreed with a lot of what he said, so I'm having trouble understanding why this is all making me so uneasy. Uneasy? How? It's really hard to explain, Terry said. There aren't really specific things I can point out. It's more of a gut feeling. I mean, do either of us honestly believe Sylvanus knows just what he is getting into? Or just what we are getting into? Uh, no, Lucas said, but I think that explains pretty well why you were feeling nervous. We have no idea what to expect, and that's scary. But it's also exciting. That's true, Terry said. I guess I just don't want Sylvanus to be taken advantage of. Taken advantage of? By who? Lots of people, Terry said. Miller, first and foremost. Before I met Miller, Lucas said, I would have said the same thing. But trust me, Terry, he's definitely on our team. And with someone like him on our team, we can go a long way with this. Now, I am not going to go so far as to say I think we'll win, but by running this campaign, we'll be able to get his message out to a lot of people who may not otherwise hear it. That I can understand, Terry said. Look, my feelings are not so strong that I'm going to try to stop you guys. In fact, I think we should keep this between ourselves. There's no reason to give Sylvanus any more reasons to worry. Agreed, Lucas said. There's one more thing, Terry. What's that? When I go to school Monday, I'm going to tell Weinberg that I'm not going to fight to keep my job, he said. I figured as much, Terry said. I'm not totally on board with you, Paul, but I know you want to help Sylvanus as much as you can. Yeah, Lucas said. I haven't talked to you much about this, but I've been sort of miserable at that school ever since that thing with Chris Lee. I could tell, Terry said. How? Before, you used to tell me about your day. But that sort of stopped, she said. Look, I never thought you were the type to stay at the same job forever, so I'm okay with it. Good, Lucas said. I mean, this thing with Sylvanus is a chance to make a big impact. Terry laughed. What? Nothing, she said. Just you and your making a big difference dreams. Something wrong with them? No, Terry said. In fact, that sort of idealism is one of the reasons I married you. It's just been a while since you've made one of those comments. Lucas laughed, too. He was glad Terry understood and, even more, supported him. Lucas looked at the TV and saw that one of his favorite media and political critics, Norman Solomon, was on, and Wynne was asking him about Sylvanus's candidacy. What do you make of his chances? Wynne asked. Not real good, Solomon said, but I'm not sure that matters. What's important about Douglas's candidacy is that it will cause the more mainstream candidates to address some of the issues he brings up. I mean, I highly doubt Kerry, Dean, or any of the Democrats are going to make an issue out of how the grow-at-all-costs economy is unsustainable, but Douglas certainly will. And, if he is convincing enough, that's going to force these other candidates to make clear their positions on such matters. So you think Douglas might help us draw these other candidates into focus? To a degree, Solomon said. I qualify that because, of course, 
they still are politicians who will give politician-type answers, but I'd like to hope that it will force some of them to drift to the left, which is where the Democrats should be anyway. Drift to the left? Why do you say that? Because Douglas has the chance to be 2004's Ralph Nader, a guy that the Dems can't be real happy about having around because they'll see him as potentially stealing away votes from the progressive voters and potentially allowing Bush to have a second term. So they're going to want to combat Douglas in any way they can, Solomon said. One way to do that is to adopt some of his positions. Fascinating, Wynne said. And from my read on things, I think you were dead on. But what do you think, audience? Our poll question is, would you consider voting for Sylvanus Douglas? Call 1-800-MERCURY and let us know what you think. The show cut to a commercial, so Terry took their popcorn bowl and glasses to the kitchen, while Lucas decided to check his email. At the very top of his inbox was a message from Miller, meeting and lunch at my place. He read it and learned that Miller was mostly pleased with Sylvanus's appearance and thanked Lucas for convincing Sylvanus to announce on Wynn's show. He said that he was going to fly Sylvanus back to Seattle and have him spend the night in his guest house, and he hoped Lucas would meet with Sylvanus and a team of experienced political consultants the next day. Lucas wrote a quick response confirming that he would come, and as he finished, Terry entered the room and said, Wow, look at that! Lucas followed her finger to the TV and saw the preliminary poll results. 37% said, Yes, I'd consider voting for Sylvanus Douglas. 41% said no, and 22% were undecided. Those numbers are pretty high, Lucas said, and for the first time, a small part of him felt maybe Sylvanus could win. They sure are, Terry said. So maybe I was wrong about my doubts. Well, Lucas said, never discount your instincts. But yeah, with numbers like that, maybe everything is going to be okay. I hope you're right, Terry said though Lucas still detected enough doubt in her voice to make him worry. That Saturday morning, Lucas didn't do his digestive system any favors as he ate a large breakfast of bacon and eggs while watching Fox News. Most of its coverage was still dedicated to cheerleading the war in Iraq, but there was a short piece about Sylvanus' decision to run for president. They interviewed a few experts who all reiterated a basic theme. Sylvanus lacked the experience necessary to be president, let alone a city council member in his small hometown of Lincoln, Washington. They complimented the story with a poll which asked, Does Sylvanus Douglas have enough experience to be president? Underneath the question and call-in number, they showed a running tally of responses, represented by a bar graph. Not surprisingly, the bar for no dominated the others at 96%, with 3% undecided and 1% saying yes. Lucas laughed as he wondered just who those 1% were. Perhaps people like him who just wanted to mess with the poll even if they didn't actually think Sylvanus had enough experience. Because if Lucas honestly answered the question, he'd also say no. That said, he felt like the whole system was such a mess that it may not hurt to get a total outsider like Sylvanus in there. As he thought about these things while getting ready to go to Miller's house, he realized that the nature of the coverage might not be important. What mattered was that they were covering Sylvanus again. At this point, he just wanted as many people as possible to be aware of Sylvanus and his presidential campaign. He knew that the vast majority of Fox viewers were never going to vote for him, 
but he still wanted those people to know about him and be exposed to his ideas. Thinking about this, he realized something else. If Sullivan was right about the Democrats fearing Sylvanus's campaign, that meant conservative media like Fox were probably going to continue covering him. They'd continue to mock him both to please their rabid right-wing base and to rally those progressives who had the stomach to pay attention to such media. It was reverse psychology in practice. Whatever the conservative media violently opposed on the surface was something progressives would feel they had to defend. And Fox wanted it that way because they likely calculated that the more support for Sylvanus their coverage encouraged, the less votes the Democrat would have, thus resulting in Bush holding on to the White House. Lucas smiled at all this and silently thanked the execs at Fox for this unanticipated gift. No matter how things go, Lucas thought, it's going to be a wild ride. On his drive to Miller's house, Lucas decided to tune into NPR and see what the supposedly progressive station was talking about. It didn't take too long for him to hear about Sylvanus's candidacy. The veteran reporter Daniel Shore said that while some of Sylvanus's positions, including his opposition to the war in Iraq, were commendable, throwing himself into the crowded race to replace Bush was not. He said people who wanted a change in leadership would stand a greater chance by supporting one of the Democratic candidates because only the Democratic Party had the infrastructure and resources to mount a serious challenge, regardless of how much money Mike Miller threw at Sylvanus's campaign. He also said, that in uncertain times like these, the last thing we should do is turn over the reins of leadership to such an unknown, inexperienced candidate. Stupid shore, Lucas said when the report had finished. Are you on the Democratic Party payroll now? Lucas wanted to think what Shore said didn't matter, but he knew it did, for he was one of the most respected members of the NPR staff, and lots of left-leaning people took his opinion seriously. He also earned some credibility for being critical of the Iraq War, at a time when so many of his colleagues fell in the line behind the Bush administration. But it wasn't only Shore's analysis that disheartened Lucas. After the report was done, the host of the program reported that in NPR's informal poll about whether people would vote for Sylvanus, the numbers were much lower than Mercury's. Only 21% said yes, 52% said no, and 27% were undecided. Lucas knew these weren't horrid results, especially if they could turn some of those undecideds in their favor. As he drove, though, he reminded himself that the goal of all this was not necessarily winning, but getting the message out. Yet he had trouble fully buying it. For much as he wanted to be realistic and not get his hopes up and then crushed, he couldn't shake his desire to win. It was, indeed, an impressive team of political consultants that Miller had assembled on short order, and they met Sylvanus and Lucas around a rectangular table in a meeting room in the main building of Miller's estate. There was Joe Docker, who had helped popular progressive Washington State Representative Jim McDermott win his first campaign back in 1988, and had worked with McDermott on all of his re-election campaigns, all victories. There was Christine Hansen, who'd started off working with environmental groups before helping Washington Senator Patty Murray win her first campaign in 1992 even though she'd been greatly outspent by her opposition, Miller said. There was Heather Smart, who'd worked on Bill Clinton's winning campaign for president in 1992 and also his successful re-election campaign. And last, but not least, there was Philip Jordan, 
who'd worked in politics for over 40 years and had been campaign manager of the billionaire independent populist Ross Perot in 1992, helping him bring home almost 19% of the popular vote. He knows a thing or two about running an outsider campaign, Miller said. Introductions completed, Lucas complimented Miller on his fast work and said he was happy to have so much experience in the room to work with. I've never run a political campaign, Lucas admitted. So, and Sylvanus supports me on this, I'll need some help from as many willing hands as possible. The consultants all promised they'd do what they could, should they come to an agreement about working together. Lucas said, Thank you. Now, I want to express where I think we need to take this, with your permission, of course, Sylvanus. The floor is yours, said Sylvanus, who Lucas noticed had dark circles under his eyes. Thank you, Lucas said. Even though Lucas was speaking, he continued to sit at the table. He wanted this to be a meeting that was informal, and for everyone to feel like they were an equal. The impression he didn't want to make was that he was talking down to, or lecturing, such experienced people. This can't be an ordinary campaign, Lucas said. To ensure coverage, we'll need to break the rules and keep the press and public on their toes. We've already got a candidate who the public can see is going to speak differently than a regular candidate. What we need, then, is some informative and entertaining political theater that makes people think as they are shocked out of their complacent mindsets. Only if we pull that off will people truly believe we are a real, substantial change. If I can interrupt, Smart said, I wonder if you might be underestimating the conservative nature of the voting public. People don't want a radical. Yes, I understand, Lucas said, but people do want somebody who is different. Someone who is truly willing to represent them against the establishment, against the politics of business as usual. I'm sure you are aware, Docker said, that President Bush's approval rating is in the low 70s right now. It doesn't seem like the sort of numbers we'd expect if people were so disapproving of the status quo. Yes, I'm aware of that, Lucas said. But I also think that it is just a reflection of the war fever the country has right now. It's a condition that will likely pass, especially as the occupation continues. Also, I think if we dig a little deeper, we'll find there is still a lot of unrest and dis-ease among the people. And what we need to do is remind them of that and then tell them that we can be the cure. We need to convince people that the current political actors, both parties, are the real radicals, the ones robbing the public blind and giving that money to undeserving corporate fat cats, Lucas said. We need a return to reality, one that recognizes that without Main Street, there is no America, at least not one worth fighting for. We need a reality that denies an economic system that pits Wall Street and its interests against the rest of us. Those are good ideas and nice language, Jordan said. The kind of language you might remember that my candidate, Mr. Perot, was able to use rather successfully. So, I think there is some truth to what you say. I also think I can speak for the others at this table by saying that your contributions to our efforts will surely be welcomed. Having said that, the realities of our political system dictate that there are certain things that must be done. Things like raising money to run the campaign. So, if we go the Nader route and piss off corporate America, we also risk pissing off a good portion of potential campaign contributors. But, Lucas began, Paul, Sylvanus said, if I may. Sure, Lucas said. 
No offense, Mr. Jordan and all of you, but I just met you folks today. And, while well, I'm sure you all have a lot of experience and some good ideas, Sylvanus said. I've known Paul Lucas ever since he risked his butt to get me out of that tree a year and a half ago. And I trust him more than anyone I know. I trust him so much, in fact, that, and I was hoping to hold off making this sort of announcement, I'm hoping he'll consider my offer to be my campaign manager. <laughs>